So welcome to episode two of our Simulcast Journal Club podcast and I'm here with Ben Simon again and hoping to bring you the best of what we've had last month and a couple of new papers to talk about. Welcome Ben. Thanks, thanks for having me. Let's get right into it Ben. Tell us about the paper we've had in February and a little bit about why you chose it. Sure. So the paper that we looked at this month is called Communication in Interdisciplinary Teams, Exploring Closed-Loop Communication During Insight-Due Trauma Team Training. Uh, and it's by a few authors from northern Sweden, with the primary author being Maria Hergestein, and published in BMJ Open in 2013. And I think I really love this article and wanted to choose it because... Uh, we've looked at a lot of opinion pieces and editorials so far in Journal Club, and this was just a really nice, big, meaty chunk of raw data showing what people are actually doing in kind of the cold face, cold face in the real world. And it was quite confronting in a lot of ways in terms of the the findings of the paper. Um, I mean, to summarise for those who haven't read it yet, they, they took a group of people working on trauma teams in a hospital in northern Sweden, and they showed everyone a video about the importance of teamwork, communication, and closed loops, and then they all did the same identical scenario. And each scenario was recorded and transcribed, and then the authors counted the amount of closed loops and non-closed loops of verbal communication used in each resource. And essentially what they seemed to find was that there were about three closed loops for every 20 open callouts, and that participants with a Scandinavian background were associated with increased use of CLC, and that an authoritarian leadership style was associated with decreased frequency. And I think the heartbreaking kind of data for me was that previous participation in local SIM training didn't seem to increase CLC use. Um, but thankfully, kind of after opening that Pandora's box uh, of bad news, at the end of it, there was a little bit of hope that came out in that if you've kind of participated in at least two structured trauma courses, then that did improve your kind of relative risk of closed-loop communication. Yeah, I agree. It's been an article on something that many of us have held as a basic tenet of our SIM training, which is we're teaching communication. And of course, it's going to be better when people participate in SIMs. But this does seem to confront that notion. Um, any thoughts about why? Well, I think certainly from reading the paper, and I guess also in the journal club discussion with you have with our bloggers was that I felt they were kind of three or four primary issues that they identified. And I think the challenges to truly communicating in that ultra awesome closed loop style that we preach is that people identify that cultural backgrounds really hugely influence team dynamics. Um, they also really identify that nonverbal communication is really important, but it's difficult to teach, difficult to measure and, and difficult to research. And so it was kind of underreported in the article. Um, and I think you just kind of touched on in your comments as well the concern that a lot of our communication teaching really often comes down to recipes and that maybe recipes aren't the answer. Yes, and I'm happy to sort of recap on that. And some of that comes from my experience with medical students. Unfortunately, very early on, much of the die is cast with people's innate communication style and then coupled with what's the actual context in which the communication is happening. And so when people are at ease and they've got something that they're familiar with, of course their communication is good, particularly if they are naturally a good communicator. That does actually mean something, I think. Whereas I think you're right, what we saw here was a bit confronting, which is if you're working with people who you're used to dealing with in everyday life, you do seem like you do some better communication, at least as measured by the outcomes in this paper. Hmm. 
either that or Scandinavians just naturally superior. But it, it was certainly reflected in the in the journal club comments as well, and it was really interesting to hear people kind of reflect on uh, some of our educators being from a, a hospital environment where you will have uh, multiple people in that scenario who aren't from necessarily the same language speaking background, and the challenges that that can face, that can create rather, I guess. Mm. And I think we had some very honest comments. You're right in in there. While everybody is probably well disposed towards. Uh, a very multicultural team, uh, there's no doubt that people experience finding that more challenging when it came down to what are the communication norms. Mm. And to be honest, I even see the difference between, say, Australians and the US. I think we do have different communication styles. It's neither better nor worse, but when you're not matched, that's, I guess, when you have a problem when mm. the stakes are high and the time is critical and the communication needs to be short, sharp and meaningful. And it's so, it just seems to be so baked into our, our psyche and our soul at such a deep level that it's very how, challenging to kind of change and also to educate how to change. Mm. I also particularly liked, Ben, the fish and chips and fries <laughs> kind of puns that went through the whole discussion. Yeah. We do have some great discussants, I have to admit. Absolutely. It's been it's such a pleasure to have everyone back as well as in, in the new year. Um, and it's like uh, kind of like the first first day of school after you've all been on holidays and you see your old friends and there were some pretty good jokes in there. And Ian actually linked, I don't know if you watched that video that he linked of a great closed loop communication loop by Steve Martin. Yes, I have seen well, that one uh, before. Yeah, I love it. Yep. Um, so before we leave this paper, Ben, what were your take-homes as a simulation practitioner? Look, I think this article to me is really important because, A, it, it does give some level of evidence that we don't necessarily use closed-loop communication well in the medical profession. And I think that's important to hammer home when we are teaching this to people. It's easy to assume that it's easy and we've got evidence, A, that we don't do it very well and, B, that we don't seem to improve when we even talk about it. And so it's kind of acknowledging that as a really significant challenge in improving our practice, I think, is it was a really important take-home message for me. And I guess as an educator, on the other hand, coming to understand that teaching crisis resource management doesn't necessarily lead to crisis resource management uh, is both challenging but also a real stimulant to reflect on our teaching styles and how we're going to get people better at it. Yeah, I agree. So there's nothing wrong with the recipes but make sure they're reinforced by recognition of the complexity that underlies them. Mm. All right. Well, the one thing that's left to do is we're getting an expert commentary from Sandra Vigors, so we'll look forward to that when Ben produces his final little PDF uh, that will be up on the blog. So look out for that and delve into the comments if you want to find a little bit more. So the other thing that we had promised in our Simulcast Journal Club was a little touch on some recent papers each month. And so we'll be going through two or three papers that have caught our eye. And as the first one of these, I've taken the liberty of going right back to January 2016. Uh, and we'll be doing that, but also picking out papers from the most recent months. So I've got three, and I'm just going to run through them with some comments from me and then maybe some comments from Ben. So the first one is entitled Design of Simulation-Based Education and Advantages and Disadvantage of In-Situ Simulation versus Off-Site Simulation. And this is from Sorensen et al. in BMC Medical Education, January 2017, hot off the press. 
And I must say, I didn't really like their question, but I did like their answers. That was my <laughs> summary from this. I don't know that it's great to be just comparing in situ and off-site, but in fact, when they went through the process, in fact, I think there's some really valuable stuff in this article. Uh, just a couple of points. BMC Medical Education is an open access journal, so it's free for everybody to read there. And this group is from Copenhagen and uh, includes Peter Diekman, so part of the group that, in fact, Sandra Vigors works with. So in their introduction, they talk in some general terms about simulation and describe it as we know as a complex educational intervention and make some points about how really this does need to be learning in context and also some points which uh, is within the scope of the article but wasn't where it was primarily directed, thinking about simulation fidelity because it does come up in terms of how real is it, whether it's in situ or off-site. The other thing that I found interesting was they took some time defining their terms. So they use the terms OSS, which is off-site simulation, and ISS, which is in-situ simulation. And in fact, they further subdivided the in-situ into announced and unannounced, which I actually think is an important distinction. One who does the announced in situ, I know that uh, I'm not quite brave enough to go to the unannounced because I think it is really hard, although obviously it would be highly authentic in many ways. Uh, they also defined their scope, so they're really only talking about postgrad and interprofessional training, uh, not students. So the best part of this article I found was to be found in Table 2 where they really list the advantages and disadvantages. They go through a number of categories and they give examples. And to be honest, many of these uh, advantages and disadvantages are fairly intuitive. But one of the best parts of the paper is it essentially goes through a pretty comprehensive look at the literature including particularly in-situ simulation, but also off-site simulation. Um, I guess in terms of methodology, it probably would be hard to replicate. As they say, quite honestly, it's based on, and I quote, various sources and articles without it being a true systematic review of literature. And I guess some of the things that came out in their themes were, again, not really surprising. This is anxiety-provoking. It does not appear to influence individual or team outcome in terms of whether it's in situ or off-site simulation. They mention things like the risks of compromising patient safety in in situ, the opportunities of testing facilities, and the chance to integrate learning into departmental education. So a lot of this picked up on the themes that we had talked about when we had uh, Andrew Protrosniak in the episode five of Simulcast when we interviewed him, a lot of these were the same themes that came across. But I do think the table nicely sets it out maybe for people who are thinking about journeying into in situ sim. It gives a nice clear idea about what it can do and maybe where the benefits don't trade off against the risks. So I guess my summary with this paper, Ben, was it was a really nice literature review I think they were unsurprising outcomes, but a really comprehensive discussion that supported those outcomes. I think, as always, it's hard to know what kind of levels of evidence and what outcome measures we're using, and uh, that's probably one of the challenges with this kind of research. So, in summary, I'm not sure that I really like articles that pitch one against the other. 
I do believe uh, Edward Salas's quote, simulators do not make a curriculum, they are merely tools for a curriculum. And I would say the same thing about the location does not make the learning, it's merely a decision made in the context of what we're trying to achieve. So they were my points, but Ben, did you have any other thoughts on the paper or indeed the topic? As, as a newer educator, I, I agree. I thought it was a fantastic paper for someone who's just about to maybe start a new simulation program in their workplace and is trying to work out what are the pros and cons of how they're going to get that going. And secondly, I guess I was, I'm still intrigued about why we keep asking ourselves this question. And I wonder whether there is an element of, of subconscious kind of tribalism happening between the, the kind of coalface in situ sim educators on it in the everyday hospital workplace, um, kind of comparing themselves with what's happening in, in some of the really lovely clinical education facilities that are off-site. All right, so the second paper I wanted to talk about, in fact, the next two are from Australia, and they're both from Advances in Simulation, which is a fairly new simulation journal. It's also open access, so that's more good news for simulation educators. And Deborah Nestel is their editor-in-chief and happens to be a co-author on a couple of these papers. So the first one that I wanted to talk about is entitled Observer Roles that Optimise Learning in Healthcare Simulation Education, a Systematic Review. And that's by Stephanie O'Regan from Sydney Clinical Skills and Simulation Centre and a number of colleagues down at Health Peer in Monash, including Elizabeth Malloy, Margaret Beerman and Deborah Nestel. And this is from January 2016 and, as I said, also open access. And really there's two take-home messages in this paper for me. And that is that I think there are some better ways to engage our observers in SIM that perhaps I hadn't thought of. And the second was, for me, this was a methods lesson in how to do a systematic review of the kind of papers that we see in SIM. So the issue they were addressing was that SIM participation is very resource intensive and so it's very common to have a group of learners watching while someone else has their turn to try and get more people through simulation experience. It's not clearly understood what observers get out of it compared to the so-called active participants. And can we actually optimise what they get out of it? So I think these are really good questions and probably not ones at least I'd paid enough attention to. So their methods, it was a systematic review where they searched for studies, and I'm going to quote from the papers, which either directly compared the learning outcomes of observers in SIM with active participants or which identified factors important for the engagement of learners and uh, told us that there was no previous systematic review on these things. And they actually defined this idea about a directed observer as a uh, participant in whom there's a specific instructional debriefing or user observer tool. So the idea was you would give the passive participants or observers some specific LOs to focus on as they watched their colleagues, ask them to focus on particular behaviours or activities, ask them to list down as they're watching points for peer feedback, or even gave them a checklist to measure against uh, the observed performance against the expected or preferred. And so all of these were very active processes that they got the observers to do. And uh, as I said, these guys are pros when it comes to methods. They describe very clearly it would be completely reproducible how they did it. They searched five databases. They used 45 search terms, which they list in the article, um, and also searched grey literature and, and reference lists. And 
as well as actually finding the studies, they went through a process of quality assessment of those studies as well. And if you're into methods, this is really well described. If you're not so much, I'll sort of skip over it here. But uh, conclude to say that they went through a process where they really looked at how good are these, not just are they asking the right question. And there was very high agreement between the two reviewers when they applied their quality assessment tool. So in terms of their results, they identified 5,469 potential studies, of which nine met their <laughs> uh, strict inclusion criteria. But in fact, the nine studies included over 1,200 participants. So it actually was a decent number of learners that they ended up getting data from. And they had both quantitative and qualitative studies. So this clearly isn't a meta-analysis. And what they found was that four studies, in fact, found no difference at all in the learning outcomes between observers and the hands-on learners. Two did find better in the hands-on learners. And in fact, one study found better in the observers. I think allows us to think there is at least equipoise and that the observers get plenty out of it. Uh, not surprisingly, the learners themselves preferred hands-on. So their conclusions were that the use of these observer tools did confer a vicarious benefit when they were used, and in particular that preparing to actually participate in the feedback was a highly effective way of getting the observers engaged and also getting more out of it in terms of their learning outcomes. So I guess my take-home was a very practical one. I am going to give those observers something to do each time I leave that debrief room and take my participants to their next sim the people I've left in the room, I'm going to give them something to do. Look, I, I love this paper again because it was such a blind spot for me. And my take-home message was really, however you do it, it's important to empower your passive observers to become active meaning makers in simulation teaching. Led to similar outcomes in some of those papers as the, the active participants was just fascinating. All right, and the last one I picked was also from the January 2016 issue, Advances in Simulation by Gamble et al., and this is another systematic review, children and adolescents as simulated patients in health professional education. Once again, another methods lesson here, uh, using a narrative summary with thematic synthesis. For me, and again, I'll start with the take-home messages, it seems as though involvement of children as simulated patients is very valuable and probably feasible as long as you have some strategies for how to do that well. Again, they start the paper with a little bit of an explanation about simulated patients. And again, I hadn't seen a lot of definitions of this until now, but they mm. define it as well people trained to portray patients with a specific condition in a realistic way. Again, intuitive, but I think important to put some boundaries around what we mean by some of these terms. They you know, go on to say it is hard. I mean, employing children has its own challenges, even without thinking about what they actually do. And manifesting paediatric patients uh, is particularly hard for mannequins. So it is a good idea to think about, can we get some real children? And when you think about a lot of paediatric simulation, a lot of it is critical illness and it's using mannequins where that behaviour of the child isn't critical because that's incredibly hard to simulate, yet it's probably one of the most important tools as a paediatric critical care or emergency physician. And Ben, I know this is one of your key clinical yeah. areas, but this <laughs> must be really hitting home. And I really struggled with this paper kind of overcoming my own internal biases because I think inherently in, in paediatric teaching, as you've mentioned so much, there's a lot more kind of gestalt-based medicine in terms of your paediatric assessment and particularly the, 
the critically unwell child to me one of one of their hallmark signs is just that lack of spontaneous mood i'm cynical about how you can train a simulated six-year-old to to mimic that and i don't think you can and so that kind of dichotomy between that gestalt feel of the sick child versus trying to recreate that in a way that's a powerful learning experience for something i think is an incredible challenge i don't know how to do it beyond clinical practice in line with that they did in fact define two different groups that they looked at probably for some of that reason so they talked about child sps who are 5 to 12 years old and then adolescent sps who were 13 to 19 and i agree mm. i guess in those younger age group exactly the things that you're talking about really hard to try and simulate even if you knew exactly what you were doing and to try and ask children to simulate sick children pretty hard to do but obviously the adolescents different kind of issues that you're probably looking to create in sim and obviously different uh, level of development of the adolescents that you're asking to play those roles as well mm. and one so, of their outcomes about that i found quite interesting was that there was benefit for the adolescent participants as well yes i know so again, just briefly to go through their methods, again, they described their search strategy, their key search terms, and came up with 15 studies that they included in the review. And again, they described their assessment of the methodologic quality. And these were really heterogeneous articles, both in terms of the settings, the outcome measures, the data collection, the study design. So they took a thematic analysis approach and the things that they focused on were uh, recruitment, how do you actually find the appropriate children who will both do a good job. Uh, and they talked about going to local schools, community theatre groups, and unsurprisingly, uh, friends and relatives of people <laughs> that worked in the faculty. Uh, they then talked about training. And again, that depended on the age and the role content. And as they described, consistent role portrayal, as we might expect, say, for an exam, this was very difficult. Uh, then they talked about participation and support and again compared perhaps to our adult SPs who sometimes we were asking to do the same role 15, 16 times in a day. They appropriately, I think, said, look, they probably can't do more than four to eight consultations in a day and even those were mostly studies on older children. And then you're right, we got to a couple of really interesting ones. What, what were the ethical issues? What risks of psychological distress were there, both just in interacting with adults they didn't know, but also in terms of the content of the scenarios and how might that affect the children themselves? And so they spoke a lot about how to mitigate that using support and debriefing and by reducing the workload. Uh, and then, as you say, there were some real positives there. So things like the parents saying it was really good for these kids to have a job, uh, but <laughs> admitting that it perhaps wasn't for all children. And uh, I did like some of the child perspectives. They liked dealing with the health system and the doctors. Um, as you said, the uh, risk-taking scenarios in adolescents tend to reduce their own risk-taking <laughs> behaviours. Yeah, that was really <laughs> and, interesting. Uh, and the quote from some of the younger children, which was that it was fantastic because it was having fun and missing school. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, my take-homes were this is doable and it probably has some advantages, but it does need a program approach. This isn't just a matter of ringing up one of your mates who happens to have a three-year-old and say, can you bring them in because we need them to do a sim? I think... It does need an institutional kind of framework in which to do it safely and effectively. But for some learning outcomes, I think potentially of benefit. 
it seemed like a lot of the benefit particularly came from that communication skills practice as well. Yes, exactly right. Well, we'll look forward to seeing more. Um, but as I said, with both of those articles, if you are interested in methods at all, we just had a uh, masterclass in them from both of those. So they're my three articles for this month. Hopefully interesting reading. Obviously, there'll be links to those in the blog post. Uh, so before we go, Ben, you better tell us what's up for next month. Yeah, so next month we're looking at our first kind of crowdsourced article, which I'm a bit excited about. So thanks to some suggestions from Twitter, uh, we're doing an editorial from the Journal of Anesthesia entitled Helping Experts and Expert Teams Perform Under Duress, an Agenda for Cognitive Aid Research. That's a really great editorial that provides an overview of current evidence around cognitive aids and provides a series of principles that should underline future research. And in doing so, it gives you just a really nice um overview of cognitive aids and where they're currently standing in uh, resuscitation research. So our expert commodore is going to be the author of that editorial, Dr. Stuart Marshall, who I think you know pretty well. Yeah, I know Stu and I've been an admirer of his work for a long time. He's a consultant anaesthetist who works down in Melbourne uh, at Monash uh, as well as clinically. And he's done all this work looking at testing out cognitive aids themselves, as well as lots of other things in SIM. He's been a past convener of the SIM Health Conference, and he's also a convener of the Clinical Skills Conference in Prato, Italy, this year in May. And perhaps one of the more interesting things is his Twitter handle is at Hypoxic Chicken. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, as you can tell, you get a little sense this is a fellow who uh, has a good sense of humour and we hope has some insightful comments to make about his own article and our comments on it. Yeah, well, this is the first time we've had an expert commenter who's, who's going to also be the author of the article. So I'll find that very interesting. All right, Ben, well, we'll look forward to the comments and lots of encouragement for people listening to jump on board and say anything you like on the Journal Club so that we can get a happy and robust discussion. So I wish you all the best for the end of February, Ben, and we'll look forward to March. Yeah, thanks. Can't wait.